Hi there, this is James Maynard from the Cosmic Companion. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, our podcast is put out through Anchor FM. If you've ever wanted to have to your own podcast, they're a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, Anchor gives you a chance to uh, put get your podcast together with all the tools in one place. And um, you can do it from your phone or a computer. And they're going to help you get distributed out to all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it. And so best of all, Anchor's all free. How cool, huh? Anyway, if you want to check it out, go download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Clear skies. Hello, and welcome to the Cosmic Companion. This week, we take a look at how astronomers and astrophysicists are perplexed by different values obtained when measuring the expansion rate of the universe, one of the most important numbers needed to determine the past, present, and future behavior of the cosmos. We will also examine how the angle at which planets spin could affect their chances of developing life, and the discovery of a complex sugar inside an asteroid may help explain how life developed on Earth. On my podcast this week, I will interview Dr. Lucy Ziris of the University of Arizona and Tom Zega of the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory two of the head researchers on a recent study of interstellar buckyballs. We'll talk about how they used a microscope to simulate conditions around a dying star and what it could mean in the search for life around other stars. Look for that interview on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, available on all major podcast providers. This summer... Over 100 astronomers and other researchers gathered at the Cavili Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of California to discuss the Hubble constant. This figure, which measures how quickly the universe is expanding, is vital to understanding the history of the early cosmos as well as its ultimate fate. Several techniques are available to astronomers looking to measure this value, but each method produces different results. It is possible that this conundrum could be resolved if the universe contains unidentified particles traveling near the speed of light, or if dark matter interacts with ordinary matter at a greater rate than expected. Until this mystery is solved, we will remain uncertain how old the universe is or how it will finally perish. The Earth is tilted at an angle of around 23 and a half degrees, and that amount varies by a few degrees over the course of every 41,000 years. However, some worlds like Mars experience significantly higher variations 
which may have led to the current dry, frozen conditions seen on the Red Planet. New computer simulations from Georgia Tech show what would happen to an Earth-like planet placed in the Alpha Centauri star system, which contains two stars in a binary star system. The study revealed that such a world would be subject to significant swings of its orbit that could doom any life which developed there. However, the two main stars of the system orbit close together, and similar worlds in other binary star systems separated by greater distances may be stable, allowing life to flourish. Life first formed on Earth roughly 4 billion years ago as our planet was being bombarded by a vast number of asteroids, comets, and other debris. An international team of researchers have now identified ribose, a type of sugar, in a pair of asteroids found on Earth. Ribose is essential for basic functions of life on our planet. The team believes that the sugar may have formed inside asteroids as gas and dust collapse to form our solar system. This material may have eventually landed on Earth. Other sugar molecules may have taken a similar journey billions of years ago, potentially triggering the formation of life. Today we are interviewing Dr. Lucy Zures, uh, a professor of astronomy and chemistry at the University of Arizona, as well as Dr. Tom Zega, Professor of Planetary Science at Lunar and Planetary Lab. And both of these people are researchers on the um, discovery of how C60 or buckyballs um, form in space. Um, first, let's start with um, with Lucy, how did, how did you get into this research? Well, I've been very interested in molecules and chemistry in space for 40 years at least. <laughs> and um, we've always been studying smaller molecules. So it was a, quite a, a big interest when a few years back they found C60 out in interstellar space by studying its spectrum in the infrared. And so, of course, one of the big questions was we've been seeing molecules with you know, five, six, seven atoms. Now all of a sudden we go to a molecule with 60 atoms, and not only 60 atoms, but it's pure carbon. So 60 carbon atoms. And that's hard to fathom in the environment of interstellar space where there's 10,000 hydrogen atoms for every carbon atom. And of course, carbon likes to bond to hydrogen. So why do you get a pure C60 compound? Right, right, thank you. And Todd, can you tell us a little bit about how these molecules form? Yeah, so um, Lucy and I have been working together for a number of years now, and um, uh, she and her graduate student Jacob had some ideas about how uh, molecules uh, um, might be interacting with each other out in the interstellar medium or even circumstellar environments. And uh, we've known from studies of meteorites, which is what my group largely focuses on, that carbon compounds do occur in these kinds of uh, samples, these primitive samples from uh, the early solar system that also happen to contain um, 
fragments and pieces of literal stardust from outside of our our own solar system. And so we've been talking about uh, the relationship between the gas phase molecules of the kind that uh, Lucy studies and the kind of condensed matter that we look at in meteorites for, for a while now, and trying to link um, how they get from that, that, that gaseous state uh, around stars or in the interstellar medium to condensed matter uh, that ultimately gets transported uh, into our own solar system and preserved in, inside of, of primitive meteorites. And so, but get, getting, getting around to, to C60 itself, uh, there were some ideas floating around how uh, these kinds of carbon structures could form uh, as a result of uh, interactions with uh, other kinds of materials. And that's sort of what led us uh, to doing some of the experiments uh, that, that were reported in the paper that, that we're, we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. And how common is C60 within meteorites? Oh, within meteorites. Yeah, meteorites. it's not been observed yet in, right. in meteorites. There are materials that look um, maybe similar in, in uh, qualitatively their, 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 their composition, i.e. they're carbon-rich, um, but C60 itself as a, a, a tiny, tiny sphere that, that, uh, uh, that could be observed as a discrete grain, that has not been seen yet. Uh, but we think maybe maybe it's there, but these things are really really hard uh, to image at the kinds of scales that uh, that we that we want to be able to see them at. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and in space, it's more common. It seems oh, C60 C60 has been seen now in a variety of, of different types of um, interstellar objects. It's primarily seen in near dying stars and something we call planetary nebulae, but it's been seen in some other objects, and now they think that C60 in its ionic form, C60 plus, may also be present in diffuse clouds and account for some of these very strange, unexplained, mysterious bands they see at optical wavelengths called the diffuse interstellar bands. And there is some evidence that C60 may be responsible for some of these bands that they don't know what they what molecule or what chemical they arise from. So C60s, you know, the more they look, the more it's found. And so of course it's not just seen in a single object, some strange anomaly. It's pretty common. It's pretty common. It's interesting. Yeah. And um, this research um, sort of took an interesting path in that you're simulating the interstellar Medium yes. or, yeah. we're, we're simulating the environment. Within a microscope. Yeah. Well, actually, yes, within a microscope. <laughs> we're simu simulating the environment around a dying star where C60 is seen out in interstellar space, space in, a, in, a, in a transmission electron microscope, yes. And um, the interesting thing is that C60 is pretty common, so we had to find a source of it that was common. Mm -hmm. And around these dying stars, dust grains form. And one of the most common form of dust grains is silicon carbide. And it's the heating and shock um, uh, treatment of silicon carbide that leaches the silicon from the surface and leaves pure carbon, which forms at first graphite, we all know what graphite is, and then starts forming buckyballs. Right. And perhaps other carbon nanostructures. So what is the next step in this research? Well, that's a good question, right? So uh, 
we think that maybe we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here, so to speak. Uh, as Lucy said, uh, there may be uh, other carbon structures that could be forming through similar kinds of uh, uh, mechanisms. Um, but in terms of the, the, uh, the experimental work, there are some other directions that you know we could go in by um, doing this inside of the transmission electron microscope, uh, using the conditions of the microscope to simulate the kinds of conditions we think might occur out there in circumstellar or interstellar space, uh, and, and observe these things happening maybe in, in real time, so to speak, inside of the microscope at the nanoscale to the atomic level. So um, C60 uh, uh, might be the, the first um, thing that, that you know we found and reported on, but maybe there are other derivatives of the C60, smaller uh, structures like bucky bowls, right? C40, there's some magic numbers, magic numbers of carbon that form very stable structures. There might be fragments of C60 and there might be carbon nanotubes. So this whole, you know, carbon nanotechnology that we've developed here in the labs may actually be occurring naturally out in space. Right. Which right. would be very interesting. That is pretty amazing. Yes. And so um, what, is the near, what are the nearest clouds that you folks are looking at or that you think may have these structures? Well, um, one of the... We're looking in, in, in planetary nebulae, and so... Just think of things like the Helix Nebulae. You can see that. That might have them. It hasn't been detected yet. But there are other nebulae like IC418 and that it's been seen in. And so some of the objects are relatively close. You know, mm -hmm. maybe a couple hundred parsecs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more people look, the more they're seeing C60. So... I'm sure it's in a lot more sources than we've detected it yet. Right, right. And had this um, had this idea come about to use the microscope as a as a staging ground? Well, to test we wanted this idea. To, we interstellar these dust grains are very small, and you really need a microscope to study them in any detail. Um, and so we've been talking Tom and I about experiments, and it just seemed like a perfect thing to try is to take these small grains and shock heat them in the microscope and see if we can see carbon nanostructures emerging, which we did. Mm. So, um, you know, these C60 and any kind of these any kind of these carbon structures are very small, and you need a microscope with high resolution to detect them. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, there are other methods of detection, but nothing is better than a picture, right? An image, which is right. what the transmission electron microscope does. Right. So you actually have images of the C60 forming. Right. Right. And so, Tom, what do you think surprised you the most as you're doing the research? <laughs> so, um, to answer that question, I'll just step back a little bit Please to what, what Lucy was saying, which is that we've been talking about, our groups have been talking about this kind of work for a while now, and um, uh, Lucy, by by training, is an astronomer. Uh, by training, um, a uh, well, I guess planetary science. I mean, we both speak a common language of chemistry, but we apply it in different ways, right? And so, uh, I think one day we were having a meeting, and Lucy and our graduate student Jacob were talking about this, and I was like, oh well, you know, we have we have this new 
technology where we can heat things up inside of the microscope and and uh, we kind of thought like oh yeah let's just give it a go we'll see we'll see how things things work and um, like most things in science they don't always go swimmingly the first time right <laughs> no, <they don't. laughs> and so you know and so one has to try different things and um, and so one thing led to another and uh, I think we were able to optimize our, our heating experiments and then we combine that uh, with with the uh, the radiation um, as really the the full effect of shocking as, as Lucy said earlier the grains and then seeing what happens I mean we had a hypothesis uh, but we didn't know whether or not any of this was going to work and so to now to answer your question what was the most surprising thing the most surprising thing is that we actually made this stuff I I really was skeptical <laughs> that this was going to work in the first place but you know some of the best uh, best research and best science uh, comes I think out of uh, somewhat accidental discoveries or uh, uh, unintended um, uh, results maybe and so so yeah but it wasn't it wasn't like it just happened right away you know so getting a little more into the details here uh, we we did the experiment at Argonne National Laboratory at, at uh, outside of Chicago mm -hmm. and uh, it looked like we had made graphene or graphite for sure but the whole C60 thing was a little bit unclear so then we had to bring the sample back here to the to, to the University of Arizona where we have a higher resolution instrument and then once we saw it at that level of scale it was like uh, aha we've you know we've tested the hypothesis now this this does appear to be working and um, and that was a real pleasant surprise when when you know things kind of lined up and it all sort of held together at that point yeah mm -hmm. so that's great we were my student I have a student who was very interested in this Jacob Bernal and he and I we kept telling Tom have to try this experiment you have to try this experiment and Tom was a bit skeptical at times, I think, but in the end, it got tried and it was great. It worked. That's great. That's great. So. And so you have um, several students then as well who are working with you on. Yes, on Thessin related projects. Yes. That's great. That's fantastic. And um, what do you think is the main takeaway from this for people who are just generally interested in science? I think the main takeaway is that the chemistry of interstellar space is surprisingly rich and varied and it's producing chemical compounds that one might never expect. And when C60 and all these nanostructures were made in the lab, they were called synthetic materials, you know, purely something that man had to go in and, and work hard to make and invent methods. but space makes them naturally. That's pretty amazing. And so the takeaway is what else is out there? What bigger molecules, maybe macromolecules, maybe biological macromolecules, we just don't know. Right. And so do you think that this, you know, there's some talk now about um, how complex carbon molecules may have actually seeded asteroids, which potentially seeded Earth or other planets, the building blocks Yes, we, we really, yeah, I think that's accepted, that that's, well, it's pretty much, a lot of people believe that that's really what happened, that that organic compounds were brought to Earth through bombardment. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Earth's crust, the primordial Earth's crust didn't contain much carbon. It got lost in the form of gases. Right. And so 
it could well be that in order to produce life on planets like Earth, the carbon has to be brought back by exogenous delivery. And Tom could tell you more about that because he studies what's delivering the carbon. <laughs> All right. Tom, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> meteorites, right? So when we look at meteorites, there's an entire group of meteorites that are rich in carbon. So the, they can contain up to, depending on the, the type of meteorite, four to six total percent by weight uh, of, of carbon. And uh, But that carbon occurs in different forms. Some of it is in inorganic forms, uh, like silicon carbide, uh, diamond. So nano diamonds occur inside of meteorites. Um, uh, graph, graphitic-like structures occur uh, inside of meteorites. Uh, there's things like carbonates inside of meteorites, which carbon is a principal component of those those materials. Uh, but then there's organic carbon as well. And the organic carbon, um, that also has various uh, forms, structures, and chemistries to it, uh, including things like amino acids that occur inside of meteorites. Uh, you know, we've learned about these kinds of compounds by um, using uh, modern sophisticated analytical instrumentation to, to measure these things. And so, uh, as Lucy uh, said before, these things almost certainly were delivering uh, these kinds of materials to the early Earth uh, as these meteorites uh, uh, were falling on, on, on the early Earth during the earlier stages of uh, solar, solar system history. But, you know, material has continued to rain down on the planet uh, ever since the time it formed over its, you know, four billion year uh, history. And so, uh, you know, the Earth has been continuously seeded with all kinds of materials. I mean, even today, uh, as we're speaking, there's material that's raining down on the planet, but a lot of it just doesn't make it to the to the surface of the of, of the Earth. But some of it does, and some of that contains things like like, like carbon compounds. And and certainly, you know, we now know that life started soon after. The late heavy bombardment. Yeah, right, where during we the got late heavy bombardment. bombardment. That, right. That's right. That kind of fits in with yeah. with those ideas sure. as well. Sure. So, is there anything either of you would like to add? Finish that part. Well, it's um, it's a it was turned out to be a very interesting experiment, and I suspect we'll find some more of these nano artificial compounds that are made naturally out in space. And I think we're only beginning to realize the full potential of what interstellar chemistry can create naturally. And uh, it should be a very exciting research field in the years to come. Tom, anything? Yeah, no, that sounds like a good way to conclude. <laughs> I would say that, I mean, if I'm adding anything, and this may sound woefully naive, but uh, nature's amazing. <laughs> you know, what it does is, as, is actually quite remarkable. And so the kinds of things that, uh, as Lucy had pointed out earlier, we, we, we've made in the laboratory um, only in recent years, right? Um, uh, nature's probably been doing this for billions of years, right? And so there's lots to learn out there. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed this show, please download and share the episode on YouTube or any major podcast provider. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit thecosmiccompanion.com. Thank you.